Hey, it's it's me, Nathaniel Avila, reporting from Texoma, and I'm here with Ruby, reporting from Dallas County. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Ready to get into some history. History? I think you mm -hmm. mean herstory. No, just history. On planet Hearth. This is not Doja Cat. <laughs> Uh, that was a Simpsons joke. Oh, really? Yeah. That's also Doja Cat's album. What was it called? Planet Her. Planet Her, not Planet Her. Her, H-E-R. Yeah, I know, but the joke was it's Planet Hearth. Because it's Earth, but it's H-E-R. Oh, I didn't hear you. Okay. I didn't hear the T-H at the end. <laughs> okay. So, all right, you got. you said you got something for me? Oh, right. So we are going to lead into the 80s with um, Mexican-Americans. Um, we're going to lead into the 80s with what's going on in the U.S. But before we get there, there's an important thing that happened in Mexico itself. This was in 1976. So this was something huge that happened because oil reserves were discovered in Mexico in the Bay of Cam Campeche off the shores of the states of Campeche, Tabasco, and Veracruz at the southernmost end of the Gulf of Mexico. The uh, Cantarell oil field established there becomes one of the largest in the world, producing more than 1 million barrels per day by 1981. Uh, Jose Lopez Portillo, that was elected in 1976, promises to use the oil money to fund a campaign of industrial expansion, social welfare, and high-yield agriculture. But to do this, his government borrows huge sums of foreign money at high interest rates, only to discover that the oil is generally of low grade. So these policies leave Mexico with the world's largest foreign debt. So more struggling in Mexico, it seems like, because of the decisions that these leaders are making that are no bueno. They're no bueno? No bueno. They're no taco bueno? So it's like they were already very poor. Like there's already like a lot of, uh, of poor society in Mexico and now the government, their government, is in debt. <laughs> yeah. So it does not look good for them. Yeah, we do live in a society, Ruby. We do live in a society. We live in a society. Yep. Um, so then you can go ahead and lead on with what's going on in the U.S. Yeah. around the 80s as well, which I want to say that the 1980s for the, in the U.S., some of the private sectors complain, uh, proclaimed this, this to be the decade of the Hispanics, bringing with it great expectations and hope. Um, some believed and forecasted that the Hispanics would develop major political power and rise to new heights in our quest for equal treatment. But the first four years of this decade of the 80s do not reflect any of these great expectations. So... I think you can go into into that. All right, so let's go into the Reagan era. So in 1985, 
Reagan reframed the issue of immigration as one of national security. Um, he said that the U.S. Um, had lost control of its borders to an invasion of illegal immigrants. Listen to the words that they use. Like, I was just recently talking about how people put their own like opinions and the way that they frame statements mm -hmm. to create bias. And so if you hear invasion of illegal immigrants and people are going to be like, oh, my goodness, you know. Uh, so Congress passed the Immigrant Reform and Control Act in 1986, which led to increased patrols along the U.S.-Mexican border, um, sanctions on employers of undocumented workers, and an amnesty program for long-term undocumented residents. So more than 2.3 million foreign-born Latino residents in the U.S. took advantage of this program, leading to naturalization and green card status. So it's funny because under Reagan's leadership, Congress had tried to limit Latino immigration, but instead they created incentives that would lead to its increase. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that that's, that was pretty ironic. Mm -hmm. All right, you ready? Uh, so let's talk, well, like the 1980s was definitely one of the more higher points of the Latin American community. Um, yeah, because we had so many people coming over during that time. And like I just read, you know, they naturalized and were issued green card status because yep. of the Reagan policies. So we had the biggest uh, increase in population during that time, mm -hmm. mainly in California. And it, it, we are recording this on Halloween Eve. Yay, Halloween. And what is more scarier than talking about history? <laughs> oh my gosh. The Republicans think that's the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> and they think uh, critical race theory is scary. Oh, critical race theory is scary. If you think about it, it's really just um history what's their gripe um, about it again why don't they like it um i have heard several things i think one of the things was like um you know if your parents are doing their jobs at home then they shouldn't be having to teach it in school and blah 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 but that's what's like it's, it's not about that it's about the fact that this is part of history that you guys are willingly omitting that sounds like they're just recycling their thing about sex education again that's their same argument with that. Pretty much. Um, what's and we the other thing? I don't know how that's been going. What's the other thing? Mm, trying to think. Oh, defunding the police? That's super scary to them. Yeah. Super scary. Oh, I meant like what other like uh, arguments against critical race theory do, do they have? Oh, um... I can't remember the other ones right now. Yeah, because their argument is for that one is like it should still be taught, but they don't know who by whom. By whom? Yeah. Whether it is the parents or a school official. Or the school, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's history. So, I mean, it, it, it seems like it would be, you know, logical to teach it in a history class but this is why we have the whole 360 the whole 360 all right so mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the 90s oh yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So last time we went over the 80s, and I'll just give like a brief uh, recap of you know something that'll like bridge the gap between the 80s and the 90s. Um, so we know that there was a 34% increase in the U.S. Hispanic population from 1980 to 1988 due to the heavy immigration, high birth rates resulting in a young age structure for Latinos with a median age of 25 years versus the U.S. median of 32 years. Um, The U.S. Latinos are a very diverse group, which includes Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, and Central and South Americans, although they tend to be clustered in very few states. Discrimination has plagued the population because of illegal immigration concerns and illegal drug drug flow problems. And Hispanics continue to suffer from poor educational achievement, language barriers, low-paying jobs, and poverty. Cubans, among them, among the Latinos, have made the most progress so far in all of these areas. Um, But poverty is likely to persist into the 1990s, which we will go over. And uh, bilingualism is and will be prevalent as long as immigration continues, but future generations will begin to use English as their first language, which I do see a lot of that now. Um, example, you, Nate. What do you mean? <laughs> 17 states, however, have adopted official language laws in order to decrease the use of funds for Spanish language services. Using Spanish in school is a very divided issue. Some favor bilingual education and some favor the shotgun English approach. As Hispanics grow into workforce age, lack of education will prevent entry into skilled labor. However, some corporations are taking a bigger interest in bilingual workers. And we also see an increase of Hispanics beginning to matter as an electorate. Um, The number of Latino elected officials has doubled from 1974 to 1988. So um, I'll let Nate go into the 90s so yeah. we can talk a little bit more about how Latinos are more prominent yeah. in the political aspect yeah. of the U.S. Uh, the 90s. Now that's a decade, right? Better than that 80s. Agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> you only like the 80s because that's the setting of Stranger Things. That's not the only reason why. I love Stranger Things because it has that 80s, um, you know, setting. But the Mm. 80s has great music, uh, great, you know, clothing. Because I think that in that era, like, people really didn't care. They, like, wore, like, they put together so many kinds of different kinds of styles. Mm. And I love that. Diseases. They didn't care. Major diseases, Uh, major discrimination things going on. But I'm talking about the good things about the 80s. <laughs> okay. Um, there was also several advances in technology. You know, oh, the is that the AIDS epidemic was going on? Cell phone. But at least Ghostbusters is out. Invented, yeah. <laughs> Ghostbusters is out. So many great movies. I mean, come on, all those um, movies made by that that director that died recently, uh, or not just recently, but a couple years back. What's his name? The one that made 16 Candles and. Breakfast Club. Oh, that's um, John Hughes. There you go. Um, so many good things from the 80s. But uh, oh, snap. as in all eras. The AIDS epidemic is history. going on, but at least I could listen to David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, there, there's always going to be bad things in every era, unfortunately. So we'll talk about the bad things that were in the 90s. 
I don't think David Bowie was even 80s. I think he was 70s. <laughs> I think he still had some releases in the 80s, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the 90s, which wasn't no peach neither. Um, so let's talk about it. So in the final two years of the Bush administration, Congress made several important adjustments to U.S. immigration law. So the Immigration Act of 1990 made marrying to evade immigration laws, voting in federal elections as a non-citizen, and falsely claiming citizenship to attain employment criminal violations, which would lead to incarceration and deportation. What do you think of that? Um, I mean, I think that it sucks for those who are just trying to come over and make a living for their family. Because they really don't have a choice. Um, you know, they're an example of how you are, I guess, pressured or pushed into doing something that you think is, is okay, you know, because it's going to get you to be able to feed your family. But at the same time, they're enacting these laws that tell you that it is illegal. And it somehow always ends up being against people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, but the bill also created the temporary protected status and lifted the English testing process for naturalization for permanent residents over 55 and ex eliminated exclusion of homosexuals as sexual deviants. So it wasn't all bad. Now, don't you feel silly now? No, I stand by what I said because <gasps> that's still very true with what I said oh, okay. <laughs> on the other part. <laughs> Okay, so now Bush Sr. is out, and now we're in the era of Slick Willie Clinton. Am I right, Ruby? Oh my god, please don't call him Slick Willie. Why? <laughs> we already know what, what Clinton was all about. Mm -hmm. So you, have you started watching the impeachment show? I have not. Hopefully I started today because um, okay. I really love Beanie. Um, but uh, like I told you before, I had a lot of, you know, bullying, I guess I want to say, or teasing back then when that was all going on because my first name is Monica, and which is another reason why I don't go by that name. I go by Ruby instead mm. uh, because I got teased a lot when I was in elementary during that whole scandal. And people will call me Monica Lewinsky, Monica Lewinsky, which is annoying. Yeah, I noticed that Lewinsky constantly jokes about it on Twitter. I see. I do see that she's very humorous. You know, when she when she talks to things, I mean, talks about the nature of those things. So I'm really interested in seeing it, um, just to see, you know, like if there's any information that that is new that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. You can also watch Mr. Personality, which was a, a reality show that Lewinsky hosted. Really? Mm hmm I didn't know that. About what? Like, what was it about? Uh, it's a it's a dating reality show. It's like kind of like a Bachelor, the Bachelorette type thing. Except uh -huh. everyone is wearing, like, masks and stuff. So that she won't judge you off your looks. It'll be off your, just your personality. So that's why it's called Wait, Mr. Personality. So was she the one that was looking for somebody or what? No, she was the host. Oh, okay. I was about to say, that's funny. So, yeah, so during the Clinton administration, several cabinet-level Mexican-Americans 
served under President Bill Clinton. So these included Henry Cisneros of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, who I did watch uh, give a keynote speech in uh, when he did it in UT Arlington at Texas Hall, um, which is very interesting. I don't remember anything from it. But you know it was interesting. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know that he was also the mayor of San Antonio for a while, and he was in charge of like a bunch of things that we have now, like the River Center. Uh, and uh, I believe he also helped with the Alamo Dome. All those kinds of things. Uh, Federico Peña is another one. Uh, he was he was in the Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy. Uh, Bill Richardson, who was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and Department of Energy. So Clinton was widely praised for his overall cabinet selections, which were significantly more diverse than prior administrations. So let's uh, give a look. Let's look at him and his cabinet members. All right, so let me just do that. All right. All right, here they are. So it looks like we have Clinton and his cabinet um, on the steps of, I guess, the White House. Yeah, it looks like the Rose um, Garden, yeah. Or the Rose Garden, sorry. And the Rose Garden's in the White House, so it's, you're, you're still right. Okay. <laughs> I've never been to Washington, D.C., just for the record. <laughs> I've been to Washington, D.C., but I've only looked at the White House, like, from afar. Is that the only way? Oh, well, you can actually do tours, right? You can do tours, yeah. I know they stopped doing tours during the uh, pandemic, but they might be starting it up again. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd love to go one of these days, um, but yeah, I've, I've not gone yet. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a picture of Clinton in his cabinet, and it looks like he has more women, too, than men in his cabinet. Mm. We know Slick Willie loved them women. Oh my goodness, Ruby. Some women. Oh, you said that, not me. So comments, direct your complaints to Ruby. It's a joke, guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, he has about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve. Like, uh, what am I, 20-something? About 20, 23, 25 cabinet members, and they're all Latino. Mm-hmm. In this picture. Yep. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, we're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. So what do you say? Clinton, best president? Oh, no. I'm not, oh. not going to say that. Okay. <laughs> I don't want any hate comments. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah. So during his presidency, however, Clinton's legacy with both Mexico and the Mexican-American community was more mixed. His passage of uh the well oh snap his passage of the 1994 crime bill is recognized as disproportionately targeting and incarcerating young mexican american and african american men further his policy of pushing washington's uh, consensus policies on mexico led to the 1994 mexican peso crisis yep which which was a, a currency sparked by the mexican government's sudden de uh, devaluation uh, of the peso against the us dollar and December 1994, which became one of the first international financial crises ignited by capital flight. Um, 
which also didn't which also decimated the mexican working class and increased the migration into the united states so we heard it we heard ourselves in the confusion right Boom. Uh. it sounds like that and it sounds like even though they try so hard or there are effects you know things that affect the latino community it seems like the end result is always more migration into the u.s mm-hmm uh, all right, so uh, finally, his signing of the NAFTA is recognized for its harmful effect on both the nation's working classes and the expansion of uh, maquiladores in states like Baja California, Chihuahua, and Coahuila. Uh, maquiladores, what are they, you ask? It, it, it's, a, it's a company that allows factories to be largely duty-free and tariff-free. Um, so, in the 1990s, Chicano youth gang involvement continued to rise across the country as a result of both the expansion of cocaine markets and widespread socioeconomic changes in the U.S. So, manufacturing jobs have been decreasing across the U.S. for 20 years, and as the American economy turned increasingly toward, uh, turned toward the technological and service industries, unemployment rates among young men of color soared in urban areas. Unable to find work in this changing economy, drug markets became the only source of survival for these displaced workers, as the rising price of crack cocaine became the only way the de for desperate youth to make money. So what do you think about that? I think that our leaders today should um, study this history. Uh, maybe they have, and they just don't want to realize it or put in the work because it would take uh, money and a lot of changes for them to actually attack, or I guess I don't want to say attack, but solve the problems that lead to drug trafficking and gangs. Mm -hmm. um, because as we see here, the result of it is actually, you know, poverty, being mm -hmm. without jobs and all of the things that they place as barriers. Yep. Uh, for attaining jobs. So what you're saying is we should get more police. That's what they hear. And we should, like, <laughs> punch them That's in the exactly face. That's exactly what our elected officials. We need more police. Yes, because that has helped, you know, stop crime and drug trafficking and gangs. That has stopped it, you know, all these years. Yeah, we got to lock them up. Sounds, definitely sounds a lot easier than whatever it is you said. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot easier than actually taking a small percentage of um, police uh, budget, mm -hmm. which we would take it from their budget because they're the ones that are in public safety, yep. right? This would be connected to public safety. And again, defunding the police does not mean we are going to take completely all of their funds. I want everybody to, you know be aware of what that actually means it's um, taking just a small percentage from their funds and actually putting it towards things that will um, solve public safety issues by investing that money in communities right so that's what that is mm -hmm. it doesn't mean we're not going to have cops it doesn't mean that there's going to be chaos and anarchy and more crime because that's what the, um, some of the elected officials want you to believe because they want you to be against that. Mm -hmm. So over time, however, drug markets were monopolized by organized gangs. 
which actively recruited increasingly younger African-American and Chicano youth. Traditional American pathways away from the gang from a gangster lifestyle such as marriage, family, and stable employment were largely unavailable to these youths. And in many black, Chicano, and immigrant communities, gang violence emerged as a dominant informal control and socialization force. So, Chicano youth gang activity in the 1990s rose notably in Los Angeles and Chicago, two of the cities with the nation's highest numbers of Mexican Americans. But gang activity rose in almost every U.S. city, including throughout Texas. The political response to gangs such as the Mexican Mafia and the 38th Street was all was a dramatic escalation of the Reagan administration's war on drugs. Racialized fears of black and brown super predators resulted on tough on crime policies in the 1990s, culminating in the infamous Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. The law provided local funding to hire over 100,000 new police officers, created grant programs to incentivize drug-related arrests, gave states funds to build massive new pr uh, prison facilities, and disproportionately criminalized black crack cocaine over regular cocaine. And some have argued this bill led directly to the U.S.'s rise of mass incarceration. What are your thoughts? That sounds about right. Um, and again, we have that, you know, good old punch it in the face approach. Um, and that also that approach where they're just reacting to a problem. They're not actually solving the root cause of mm -hmm. the problem. And that's the issue. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these police officers, no matter how many police officers you hire, um, they're not going to be there every single time they're not going to be you know actually um you know how do i say they're not going to be involved in all of those people's lives to be able to get them to change their ways they're just going to be there to respond to the criminal activity so do you think and that that's not going to help yeah so do you think that uh it's a privilege to feel safe around police Yes, absolutely. Um, a lot of people don't realize that uh, it is an absolute privilege to feel safe around police because I know several people that do not feel safe around police. I don't feel safe around police at all. And I'm, you know, just a regular person. I don't go out and break the laws or anything like that, but I, I still don't feel safe around them. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the ramifications of police militarization was extremely severe, particularly in cities like Los Angeles. In the late 1980s, LAPD had responded to gang violence with a series of extremely violent community raids, including Operation Hammer, which was organized under the community resources against street hoodlums. In the 1990s, as many as 2,000 people a year were killed in Los Angeles County due to gang violence. In September 1993, a mass meeting in Elysian Park, organized by La Erm, yeah, is that right? La La Ernie? La M. The Mex it's the Mexican Mafia. So was called to put an end to violence between Mexicans. 
However, such truces were not usually long-lasting. So after the passage of the 1994 crime bill, the LAPD responded by ramping up its anti-gang tactics, including home and apartment raids, street sweeps, and civil gang injunctions. So, there goes that. I, I like what they were trying to do, but again, when you have money and control and people who are power hungry, peace can only last so long. Mm-hmm. You know? I know that sometimes um, we have gangs coming together when there are, you know, protests for social injustices that happen. Um, but I, again, I don't know how long that lasts because yeah. those, um, the environments that they're in, as far as like the gang environment, it's basically bred off of violence, you know, to begin with. Mm-hmm. So in Unfortunately. the... Mm-hmm. So in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Service Employee International Union initiated a series of Justice for Janitors campaign to unionize U.S. janitors. At March, at a march in Los Angeles on June 15, 1990, the striking janitors, many of whom were undocumented Mexican and Central American immigrants, were attacked by the Los Angeles Police Department. So the police at first claimed they were acting in self-defense. But TV footage aired later showed the police violently beating unarmed and peaceful strikers. 60 strikers were jailed, 38 were hospitalized, and two women miscarried. What are your thoughts? There goes the good old LAPD. You, you muted yourself. Oh, sorry. I said there goes the good old LAPD doing their dirt again and trying to lie about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's a photo of said uh, strike, of the Justice for Janitors strike on June 15th, 1990. Okay. Oh, my God. So what are we seeing here? So we see um, a Hispanic male. Mm-hmm. He is wearing a Justice for Janitors shirt, so obviously he's one of the protesters. Mm-hmm. And then we have two LAPD officers in their uniforms and riot gear beating this man, both of them. One baton, one of the policemen's baton going at his face, the man's face and the other policeman's baton striking his arm on the other side. So Mm -hmm. they're like both attacking this man. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, it's just more of the same. And then, yeah, and then in the background, there's just more protesters and more of the police officers um, being violent Mm -hmm. with the protesters. So what is, how does this photo make you feel? Um... Like, it was, it's very, how do I say, um, disturbing. It's like when I first, when you first pulled it up, it's just like, I don't, I don't see the cause for, I mean, he's unarmed. He's, he's definitely, like, you can see he's unarmed. Mm-hmm. And they're just, you know, being so aggressive and beating this man. 
so it, it makes it makes me it's disturbing but at the same time it kind of like this is something that we've seen nowadays you know anytime that there's been protests with any kind of social injustice happening the police come and they are told i guess to wild out on the protesters and we saw so many videos and i'm so glad that now we have you know video um capabilities you know we have recording capabilities and we can just you know do it with our phones now um because we saw so many of the peaceful protesting that was going on and then the police officers would just come and start spray you know pepper spraying people or shooting tear gas at them and things like that. And it's like, we have a right to protest. It's literally in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Kind of it's reminds like, you a lot of the BLM protests last summer. Yeah, that's, that's, one, that's one of the ones that I was thinking of. Um, but, you know, back then, whenever it was the, colonize, the colonizers, I guess I'm going to call them, protesting against, British rule and British taxation, they didn't seem to think that they, that, that was bad. Well, they know? did dress up think... as Native Americans. What do you mean? Remember the Boston Tea Party, which was one of the biggest protests of the time? They dressed up as Native Americans and snuck on a That was ship. an action. That wasn't really a protest. That was oh, okay. an action that they did. And there wasn't many of them. But I'm saying when yeah. they began... Um, actually coming together and forming protests whenever the uh, whenever british would send their officials over to collect taxes Mm -hmm. they used to all gang up on the tax collector they used to sometimes even like um threaten them and um you know then they started with the whole you know marching against the british officials and they clashed um with the british officials whenever um england wanted to you know, um, drive them away by force, mm-hmm. you know, bringing their army into the colonies and trying to get them to behave, behave that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't see anything wrong with it then. Right. Know, they were all for protesting then. Um, also, like you said, the Boston Tea Party, they were all for destroying property then. And, and, <laughs> and dressing up as a minority. And, yeah, and dressing up as somebody else, you mm-hmm. know. So it's like whenever I hear people talk about Oh, that's not right, you know, and that, you know, it's like, this is literally the history of America. Yeah. This is where it started to yeah. begin with. Then there was that whole, and yeah. we've done nothing but learn from the founding fathers and how they acted <laughs> towards yeah. England. And also, uh, yeah, and there was that whole Boston massacre thing where that was that protest in Boston and then the British just like killed a bunch of people. In retaliation. Right, and they were tried. They were tried for that. The, mm-hmm. the um the the British soldiers were tried in uh in a court for I, that and they were found guilty. I think the whole thing was that they were gonna be tried in England and a lot of people didn't like that. They wanted them to be tried in America or in the colonies. But yeah, you know, that's a whole another ban- can of worms. So let's let's move on. Move on. Uh so let's move on. Okay, so <clears throat> one striker told reporters, this is still about the, the justice for janitors strike, uh, that what they did to us today 
in front of the TV cameras is the way the police treat us every day. And another woman stated, I wasn't robbing a bank or selling drugs. I'm simply asking for an increase in pay, but the police beat us as if we were garbage. And this is where the fear of um, police, you know, stems from. Mm -hmm. So police, uh, uh, public outrage followed coverage of the event and the janitors won the union which doubled their pay and earned them benefits the strike also inspired janitors in other parts of the country including houston uh where jailed strikers were held on 20 million dollar bail for civil disobedience that's a lot of moolah that is a high as bail, and you know what i i bet that there are rapists and child molesters and other ugly people that are much deserving of a high as bell who don't even have a high as bell like that. Mm -hmm. So outrage over the incident in Houston was global with workers across the U.S. striking in support and allies in Europe occupying buildings in protest. The Houston strike was successful and pushed a pension fund trustees to develop reasonable contractor procedures. And the 2000 film, the 2000 film, Bread and Roses was based on the Los Angeles campaign. So check that, check that out. Now, do you check that out? No, I'm definitely gonna check that out though. Yeah, check out Bread and Roses by Ken Louch. Did you say bread or red? Bread, like what you oh, eat. Oh, bread. No, 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 no. Okay. I have put red in roses <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why. Bread uh, and roses. Yeah, bread and roses. Uh, in the mid 1990s, the industrial workers of the world also sought to organize Mexican workers, including uh, troqueros and taxi drivers in Los Angeles. Uh, for those of you who don't know, troqueros are, is just another word for truck drivers. So, all right, so we're gonna go on to 1992, the 1992 Los Angeles uprising, which was an uprising against police brutality that incur occurred in Los Angeles County in April and May, 1992. The unrest began in central, South Central Los Angeles on April 29th after a trial jury acquitted four officers of the Los Angeles Police Department for usage of excessive force and arrest and beating of Rodney King, which had been, which had been videotaped and widely viewed on TV broadcasts. Though much of the media coverage surrounding the events focused on constructing either a black versus white or a black versus Asian narrative due to the tensions uh, caused by the murder of Leticia Harlins. So the majority of people arrested during the uprising were Latino. Analysis of the charges of the riots peak days showed 51% uh, defendants were Latino and 36% were black. And if of the four, 58 total people killed during the riots, more than one third were Latino. Uh, and this is according to uh, the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times. So, uh, Stanford. Do you feel like that? The, do you feel like the reason there was more Latinos than there were blacks involved in that situation, being that it was a black man who was the one that was beaten? Do, do you think it it is related to? I guess, uh, something psychological from the past of them being, you know, afraid to go against the law or against, you know, 
policemen in general, black people, if you think that has anything to do with that? Uh, probably. I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> uh. I feel like maybe, maybe the Latinos were like, Damn, yo, fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've been about this life. We've been about fighting, okay. you know, for ourselves. And uh, I mean, I feel like there is there's damage done to both um, both communities. We gotta we gotta look out for each other, Ruby. But we do. We really do. So, uh, Stanford University professor uh, Joan Patricia, uh stated about the uprising. This is what she had to say. Uh, this was clearly not a black riot. It was a minority riot. So the majority of Latino residents in South Central Los Angeles in the early 1990s were recent Mexican immigrants and Central Americans. As a result, when the city's Latino leadership met during the uprising to discuss resolution strategies, the disconnect uh, between LA's Mexican-American established and South LA's recent migrant community was more fully understood. So Los Angeles County's only Latino supervisor, Gloria Molina, told the New York Times that in the days when the Los Angeles was burning, she received multiple calls from Mexican-American constituents urging her to denounce South Central's Mexican population. Molina stated, they, they would say, well, Gloria, it wasn't us doing the looting and the burning. It was those immigrants. Molina went further and stated, they wanted me to denounce them. But I say, let's not let that divide us. So even white on, yeah. <laughs> So even white journalists such as the Los Angeles Times reporter Jack Miles noted the tension between South and East LA Latino communities. He wrote, "The law-abiding Mexican-American community of East Los Angeles resented being associated with the Latinos of South Los Angeles and that the incident marked the beginning of a Mexican-American anti-immigrant stance." Uh, and this is where we get like the Latinos for Trump type people. This, yeah, I was gonna say this is something that I recently read about. It's the whole like nationalism brainwashing type of thing that goes on in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in the years that's where they've been. I mean, like because all this time they've been shoving down our throats. USA is the best country. You know, like absolutely. We do nothing wrong. You know, we are the best because we are a democracy. And um, they don't want any, any faults. They don't want to, they don't want to, how do I say, admit any flaws. Mm -hmm. So then people think that that's true. So in the years after the uprising, some journalists focused on the long-term interracial scars left by the racial uprising while others focused on multiple intra-ethnic meetings, such as the uprising, meetings the uprising held for Latino communities in Los Angeles. Historians have also explained some of the reasons why there was so much Latino participation, participation including the brutality that Latinos also experienced for the LAPD, the near constant threat of deportation, and the neoliberal defunding of inner city municipal services. So that's 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 why they think there were more Latinos there. So again, we were fighting, you know, 
for our rights as well. Mm -hmm. We're fighting for minority rights. Right. So Proposition 187, also known as Save Our State Initiative, was a 1994 ballot initiative to establish a state-run citizenship screening system and prohibit undocumented immigrants from using non-emergency health care, public shooting, and other short services in the state of California. So the bill was widely opposed by the state's Latino community, uh, though the Mexican-Americans did express support for the measure. Well, some of them did. In the lead-up to the November vote, there were widespread no on 184 protests throughout California as activists urged that a full denial of basic rights to undocumented people would be detrimental to the state. In October 1994, an estimated 70,000 people marched in Los Angeles to protest Prop 187 in one of the largest protests in U.S. history. The political atmosphere in California at the time, however, was extremely xenophobic. And coverage of the, pro of the protests focused on a large number of Latino, Mexican, and Mexican-American participants and especially expressed outrage at the presence of Mexican flags at the protests. What do you think of that? I think that is expected mm -hmm. and not surprising at all. Um, but yet, these, pro these are probably the same people who flew uh, Trump 2020 flags and mm -hmm. Confederate flags and Nazi flags. Like, Makes you think. Makes you think mm. that they might be hypocritical. God forbid we, you know, show some of our culture, you know, some of what we, where we come from, you know. Yep. Yeah, and then they also say, I wear the, 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 the Confederate flag because it's my heritage. And then it's like, well, I'm doing the same thing. No! It needs to be the American flag and only that. Yeah. Mm. Pretty much. So Proposition 187 passed with an 58% of the vote. Shortly after the proposition's passage, U.S. District Court Judge Mariana R. Feitzler in uh, Los Angeles ruled that preventing undocumented children from attending K-12 schools was unconstitutional and prevented the implementation of most of the measures of the provisions. So hooray! Prop 187 was overturned. Yeah, because we had enough people fighting against it. Mm -hmm. So Proposition 187, though overturned, significantly eroded Mexican-American and Latino support for the California Republican Party. Uh, that's kind of like why we shifted from Republican to Democratic. In many ways, however, its basic tenets shaped the future of American debates regarding the rights of undocumented people in the U.S., Culturally, the measure had al also had a strong impact on the community. Uh, in uh, Solenidad, the poet Deborah Perez connected the collective trauma of the 1995 death of Selena to the community's response to the measure's initial passage. Writing Selena's death galvanized Latino efforts and pub to publicly mourn collective tragedies such as approved anti-Latino legislation in California, Prop 187 and Proposition 229, and to envision a brighter future. Wow. That's so, like, 
I guess I'm trying to find the word. Her legacy, you know, that she left behind. If it got people to come together, like that's that's such a huge thing. Uh, Selena's. Yeah, so it's so tragic, you know, that she died so soon in her life. Um, and I I think about this all the time. I think about what her what kind of music, you know, she would have out right now. And, you know, she was already moving towards, like, the English market. And so it sucks that we'll never get to hear that. But um, I'm glad that she can at least leave behind a legacy of bringing her people together and bringing Latinos together. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn more about uh, the murder of Selena, check out my true crime podcast. I did a two-part episode of the event. You can check it out right up there. Yeah, we're talking about Selena Quintanilla. Selena Quintanilla, not uh, any other one that you're thinking of. Selena <laughs> Gomez is not Selena Gomez because she's still alive. Right. <laughs> yep, and if you also want to check out uh, one more, to hear more of that, there's also a film that came out in 1997 where Jennifer Lopez played Selena, um, and it was directed by Gregory Nava. You can check that out. You can watch it on HBO mm-hmm. Max if you have it. Um you can also check out the uh, the Netflix show. show. Yeah, yeah, the, you can watch the Netflix show. Um, that's on. Uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. Where uh, who plays it? Christian Serratos plays <laughs> Selena, uh, and it was made by uh, Moises Zamora. So you can check that out on Netflix. There was also some other Spanish-speaking ones that are covered that you can find on Telemundo and Univision, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, those are everything you need to know about uh, Selena depicted on film. So now we're done with the '90s. The '90s are done. Now we're gonna go to the early 2000s. Great, and I have some information about the early 2000s in Mexico. In Mexico, in the country of Mexico, because like we want to give the whole 360 right. So we'll get some information about. Um, Mexico, as well as, you know, Mexicans in America. If you must. (laughs) All right, let's hear it. Just so we get the whole view, right? Uh Uh-huh. What do you got for us? So, we have the um, first, uh, I guess, opposition of the PRI rule. Remember, the PRI was that corrupt party Mm -hmm. that ruled Mexico for several years. So, we have Vicente Fox who um, wins the Mexican presidency and in the year 2000, which ends more than 70 years of PRI rule. So an interesting thing was that Fox was a former Coca-Cola executive. And you guys, if you don't know by now, um, Mexicans love Coca-Cola. I do love Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, so, but he enters in as a conservative reformer focused on improving trade relations with the U.S., um, calming civil unrest, and also reducing corruption, crime, and drug trafficking. He also strives to improve the status of millions of illegal Mexican immigrants living in the U.S., but his efforts are stalled after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Fox is also faced with large-scale protests by farmers frustrated with the inequalities of that good old NAFTA system that Bill Clinton put in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the early 2000s 
in uh, Mexico. All right. Well, let's go to USA in the early <laughs> 2000s. The consensus showed that the foreign-born population in the U.S. increased by 11.3 million people in the 1990s. And Mexican immigrants accounted for 43% of that growth. The region which had the fastest growing immigrant population was the southeast, where Mexicans found work in construction as migrant agricultural laborers and in textile mills and chicken processing plants. So the Latino populations of Georgia, North and South Carolina, and Arkansas increased between 300 and 400 percent from 1990 to 2000. Wow, that is huge. Mm-hmm. Summer. So a major focus of Chicano activists in the 21st century has been to advance the presentation of Chicanos in all American mainstream media. Criticism of the American mainstream news media and U.S. educational institutions by Chicano activists have been particularly harsh in recent years, subsequent, subsequent to the massive displays of support for immigrant rights, such as uh, that seen during the Great March in March 25th, 2006 in Los Angeles. As of today, this self-proclaimed largest march in U.S. history was primarily organized by Mexican-American organizations, uh, like uh, Chicano activists, and fueled through a large network of active internet users. L.A. Spanish-language television and Spanish-language news radio coverage is still virtually ignored by American mainstream, which, when they say that, they mean English-language news media, and all textbooks of the American educational system. What do you think? I think that it's a good thing that they're actually acknowledging, you know, that we have more Spanish speakers in the U.S., so they're kind of trying to accommodate that. Now, have, have you noticed that in the, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, the lack of uh, Mexican-American history in history textbooks? I feel like they've... Um, I feel like they've added a bit more than there was before. Um, I, I certainly see that we have more representation as far as being, uh, you know, in commercials and TV shows and movies and things like that. And some of our, you know, um, great stories being told um, were some of our unsung heroes are being talked about so i'm glad to see that now i remember i went to school during the early 2000s and i remember the latino history is was being virtually non-existent in the yeah. textbooks yeah i see it more now but back then i really don't remember if anything um i feel like it was more so you know about the colonies, learning about the colonies, learning about the government, learning about slavery and their rights. Um, I hardly saw anything, yeah, about Mexican-Americans, yeah. Chicanos, and things like that. And the civil rights movement, but only particularly towards African-American civil rights. Not so much the Latino right. or the LGBTQ aspects of it, or the women aspect of it. 
Right. All of my learning of, of our history and our unsung heroes was outside of school. Mm-hmm. Or if, if it was like a, a project that was um, like given to us. Even like in my Spanish class, we didn't really go into the history. There was more so just the teaching of the language. And at that, it was like a, a singular type of language. Like it wasn't even... A lang- some some of the words you know that they used were from the European Spanish, mm-hmm. not Mexico Spanish. You mean Latin so Spanish? Like, yeah, there was like a huge disconnect there, and it was hard for even myself, who grew up, you know, hearing Spanish and talking Spanish, to pass that class because it was just like, wait, what? We don't say that. Because <laughs> you were l- learning a different dialect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like basically, in those days, it was just Cinco de Mayo, and that's it. Cinco de Mayo, let's go get drunk. Yeah, let's yeah. have some margaritas. And it wasn't until like maybe like a couple years later, like in the late later years of the decade, they finally decided to include the Mexican Independence Day. But you know. Yeah, I still don't see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mexican Independence Day is only um, celebrated by those who know of it. Yeah. And then, uh, well, we don't see this until like the 2010s when people started finally acknowledging Hispanic Heritage Month and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, all right. So we're yeah, talking about the um, my son's school. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah, my son's school is celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. Yeah. They have like a... When he logs in, he's like, it's Hispanic Heritage Month and, and stuff like that. I mean, I never saw anything like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, me neither. Uh, all right, so a major focus uh, of the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So after the increase of border security following the 9-11 attacks in 2001, the, black, the back and forth pattern became dangerous. People kept coming north, but they stayed in the U.S. and sent money home every month. Locked into the American economy year-round, millions of these undocumented workers moved out of seasoned agricultural jobs into year-round jobs in restaurants, hotels, construction, landscaping, and semi-skilled factory work, such as meat packaging. Most paid federal Social Security taxes into imaginary accounts and thus were not eligible for benefits. Few had high enough incomes to pay federal and state income tax, but all paid local and state sales taxes on their purchases as well as local property taxes via their rent payments to landlords and stuff like that. So by 2007, they were 12 million or so undocumented workers in the U.S. Antonio, yeah, it's, it's so hard for them because they still have to pay everything that normal citizens have to pay, but then at the same time they don't get any of the benefits. Yeah, all the, all the, all the, all the tasks and none of the reward. Two thousand five, Antonio Villa uh, Villa uh, Villa was elected mayor of Los Angeles the first Latino in 130 years to hold the seat. Eric Gorsetti became the second consecutive Mexican-American mayor. So Mexican-Americans tend to vote Democratic 
1960, the John F. Kennedy presidential campaign boosted the Mexican-American vote to over 80% for Kennedy. However, Mexican-Americans in recent decades had a low turnout on Election Day. In 1984, 37% of Latino Americans voted for Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. Targeted Latinos and won 35% of their votes in 2000 and 40% in 2004. And the fact that his brother Jeb Bush married to a Mexican woman, Columba Bush, uh, yeah, Columba Bush, <clears throat> so voters have elected a number of governors to a Mexican uh, descent in the Southwest, which include Ezequiel Cabeza de Vaca, Octavio Ambriosio, uh, Lorazolo, Jerry Apadaca, Tony Anaya, Bill Richardson, and Rayot Hector Castro in Arizona. <clears throat> so what do you think about that whole mix uh, voter turnout thing? Um, I think it's about a lot of, there's, there's a disconnect. Um, there's a, a disconnect where people were taught how the government works and them just thinking that their vote does not count because it absolutely does. Um, they would like for you to think that it doesn't count um, because they know that you would most likely vote, minor um, the minorities would most likely vote Democratic. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party, as always, has always wanted to be the one to win. Mm -hmm. And they will do whatever they can to make sure that they win. So, so um, yeah. And you also fell into that mindset as well. Yes. So I know for a fact that that's what it is because I had that mindset myself. Um, not until recently when I started relearning on my own how things work and why things work the way that they do did I realize the importance of my vote. And also just because I didn't want to be one of those to just sit back and say, oh, well, it's out of my hands. Um, and then complain about what the end result was because mm -hmm. I at least felt like I took an action and I did my part and everybody here that lives in America should know that if you're a citizen of the United States it is absolutely your civic duty to participate in democracy because mm -hmm. that's literally what a democracy is it's yeah. for the people by the people as being the people. Yes. <laughs> and so, like, you also worked uh, on in 2020, during Election Day in 2020, uh, contacting Mexican-American families. What did you What did you think about that? Oh, how, yeah. How you, tell was, me your experience. I saw so, so many. Um, like, we, we did a campaign with my organization um, called TOP. It's a Texas organizing project. And we worked on getting people to, um, how do I say, we were like sending text messages basically. All of us, we were sending text messages and asking them, you know, if they were going to vote and things like that. And I saw a lot of responses that were very ugly, very nasty, very rude, you know, and, and most of them came from Hispanics, you know, Latinos. So... I do know that there are those Latinos who I guess, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, hate themselves, hate their heritage, hate their ancestors, and they want to be, you know, 
white so bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they want to be Caucasian so bad or something that they want to just completely side with them and they don't care about the repercussions because it's like you can be, you can want to be, you know, somebody else as bad as you want, but at the end of the day, you're still going to be you and they're still going to treat you like yeah. a minority. So what so. is an example of the messages that you would get that were bad? Oh, uh, well, they'd be like, you know, I don't, you know, y'all are, y'all are dumb, like, um, Trump 2020, you know, like, um, you know, I don't even know why you're bothering me or just dumb stuff, like, just, you know, ignorant stuff. <laughs> and I bet they didn't it's, even vote for Trump, but I don't think they voted at all. I don't know. And, and that's the thing, like, some of them, some of them were just saying it just to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they want to be ugly and mean and stuff like that. And it's like, we're literally reaching out because we're trying to show you how important it is for you to vote. Mm-hmm. Regardless of who you vote for, it's still important for you to, to vote because that's, that's where, where you live. You chose to live here in the United States or you're, you are living here in the United States. And unfortunately, that's one of the things that you have to participate in is in the government because that's how it's set up. We don't live in a fascist, you know, country where everything is decided for you. Mm-hmm. That's literally what the founding fathers, you know, yeah. fought for. Despite what the GOP wants you to believe. They want you to believe that the Democrats are the fascist people because they're like, they want yeah. you to wear masks all the time and they want you to get <laughs> vaccinated. How dare they try to save your life? <laughs> so, like, also, um, uh, whew. let me think. Yeah, oh, yeah, there was a there's a Mexican slang for people like that called pochos. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's called pocho, and it's uh, it basically means fake Mexican. <laughs> so. It basically means a Mexican hasn't who doesn't want anything to do with their Mexican heritage. Yeah, I know a lot of those. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I get it, but at the end of the day, like I said, you you still are who you are, and they're gonna treat you that way. They're no matter how much you do for them, you know, it's not gonna take much for them to turn around and 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 basically stab you in the back whenever they need to or feel that it's necessary because that's what you are to them. You're a minority. So let's talk about Cruz Bustamante, who was the first Democratic Lieutenant Governor of California in 130 years from his election in 1999 to 2007. But Bustamante lost the gubernatorial election to Austrian-born actor Arnold Schwarzenegger who went on to be state governor. So, uh, what do you think about that, Ruby? Did Bustamante have prior experience in office? He was lieutenant governor for, for like, eight years. So we literally chose the Terminator, or they literally chose the Terminator over this dude that had lots of experience. Mm-hmm. But you said you were a fan of Schwarzenegger's governor. Governor. Uh, no, I. Thing. I said it actually turned out to be okay. Okay. I was surprised that it turned out to be okay. Mm-hmm. 
But when you think about it, and you have this dude that has all these years of experience versus this dude that has none, and he's just an actor. Yeah. I think Schwarzenegger ran as a Republican. Let me see. Did he? Yeah, he was Republican. Wow. What are you guys doing? Yeah, but don't worry. You said he was okay. He was a he was a decent Republican. Yeah, but who knows how much better the Democratic and Latino would have been, you know? Mm-hmm. And I know that he has since called like people who refuse to wear uh, masks like dumbos and dummies. Yeah, I guess he's kind of one of those uh, nice Republicans. He's or, not so yeah. conservative. I guess. He, yeah, he's what the GOP calls a rhino. A rhino. A rhino. A Republican in name only. Okay. Maybe he did do that. Maybe he was playing, you know, their game. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to run as Republican only because I know that that's what the people would vote for. But I'm going to act Democratic the whole way. Oh, snap. He's playing the system. Trying to get the system Mm -hmm. on the inside. So, uh, okay, so moving on, we're going to go into the title of uh, Romualdo Pacheco. Romualdo Pacheco, who served Pacheco. as the yeah Pacheco, who served as the twelfth governor of California and remains the only Latino governor in the state's history as part of the United States. So yeah, that's that's basically it. Now it's uh I know that uh California is very very democratic and they're they currently have a democratic governor. Uh, Gavin Newsom who I remember there was this huge scare that happened there was like some kind of thing that happened where the GOP wanted like a recount or a re-campaign or something uh, yeah I read about that yeah so uh, so so they can get a Republican into the governor office of California it's uh, funny how it's only cheating and they only need a recount whenever it's them that lose yep oh yeah <laughs> But when they win, they're like, no, no recount, no. <laughs> yeah, and their districts are heavily gerrymandered. Yeah, and it's like, I don't want, I don't want anybody to, you know, watch this and say, oh, they're so leftist on this podcast or they're so democratic on this podcast. I am not a party affiliated person. First of all, I only have my interest of the good of the people mm-hmm. and it just so happens that the democratic party is more aligned towards that mm-hmm. than the republican yeah and you so. just said that uh, arnold schwarzenegger who is a republican was actually not a bad Repub- uh, uh governor exactly so um that just goes to show you i'm i'm not a uh, party aligned i'm not a what do they call it you said party loyalist once yeah there you go i'm not a i'm not loyal to any party i'm actually loyal to our community and to the people of the country so mm-hmm. the best i want the best for everyone here mm-hmm. including you trump supporters y'all don't know it but we want health care for you we want free health care for you we want free education free please. education for you especially free education good lord I don't want to be in debt till I'm a million years old. Yeah, exactly. And uh, don't believe that, oh, everyone can become a millionaire, lie, because not the way they have it set up. They want you, They want only those people that are millionaires to stay millionaires while the rest of us stay poor. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, that's that's where we'll end today's podcast. We covered the uh, two, the nineties and the early two thousands. What is your overall uh, opinion on these two decades? Um, I guess one of the main points that I've actually seen across all the decades, something that still plays us today, even is that brute brute force of policing. Mm. Like, if you listen to all of our podcasts, all of these episodes, that's one thing that you will see constant, is that since the beginning of policing, it's been brutality. Mm -hmm. They've been using their power abusively. Right. And it's not okay. And that needs to change. That's one of the things that I have not seen change. Everything else, you know, we've seen progressing slowly but surely, except for that. Right. So in the next uh, episode, which will most likely be our final episode regarding Mexicans in America, where we'll talk about the 2010s, where we'll focus on the Obama era um, and the Trump administration. Mm. Yeah. That's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the uh, immigration policies during the Obama era, uh, the LGBTQ legalization uh, of same-sex marriage in 2015. We're going to talk about uh, the Trump protests uh, in 2016, the 2019 El Paso shooting. And then we're also going to talk about, we're going to also go into the 2020s, where we're going to talk about the BLM uh, protests uh and the COVID 19 pandemic and that's where that's <laughs> we can't go any far any further than that we can't really go into the future <laughs> i hope we also talk about how badly obama was bullied you know for winning that presidency mm-hmm. when he did because geez that brought out some of the worst and people and i thought that was the worst in people but then the trump administration came out and then I was proven wrong because there was even worse things that people were just itching to say. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so that's what we'll talk about next time. All right, did you have a good time this this time around, the second time we're doing this? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us um, in this uh, spooky history, Ooh. scary history for... Uh, for Latinos. <laughs> yeah. Be careful on Halloween. Because Halloween be can safe. be pretty dangerous sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. You guys be safe out there. Um, but in- enjoy enjoy Halloween. And um, we will catch you on the hopefully last episode. Um, and then we can get into the other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, like Native Americans. Yeah, Africa Ruby really Americans, wants to talk about the Native Americans. All of that, yeah. So that'll be some definitely interesting stuff. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you guys next time. I've been Nathaniel Abua. (laughs) And I've been Ruby Rodriguez. All right. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to A Vision Podcast, home of Wacky Talkies, The Kingdom, Evil Exists, and many more.